Welcome to Our Data, a podcast about the public's interest in the era of big data. We explore the contours of the public's interest in the landscape of emerging database technologies. Blockchain, AI, big data, and the Internet of Things are pushing the boundaries of our imagination while challenging the ability of policymakers to respond appropriately and effectively. Join us as we talk to leading edge thinkers and doers engaged in the design, development, and regulation of these transformative database technologies with a sharp focus on how they impact the common good. Great. Um, happy to kick off another podcast. We're really excited to um, have a really interesting conversation today. Well, I'll let, I'll let Stephen introduce it, but Stephen Keynes, who's a residential fellow at uh, Stanford Codex Center, he is a recent grad of University of Miami Law School, in concentration in business, the business of innovation, law, and technology. Stephen, it's great to, I mean, we know each other well, but it's great to have this chance to talk to you today and really kind of dive into some of these really leading edge and frankly um, uh, complicated and sticky issues that are being uh, surfaced as a result of what's being deployed uh, almost before it uh, should be. So uh, with that, I will pause and why don't you tell us a little bit about your project that you're looking at then we'll get into those issues hi mike thank you so much for inviting me on the program i'm really happy to be here Uh, my work focuses on the domestic use of facial recognition by public and law enforcement agencies and this technology as we know it kind of exists in two real environments we have it in the private sector so we're all familiar with our iphones and different apps using facial recognition to help us as consumers or just personal privacy access that data. But what's interesting is there's been a really increase in the amount of use of facial recognition by public and law enforcement agencies in the United States. And on an even more interesting standpoint, there is uh, essentially a large unregulated environment where a lot of this technology is developing. And there's very little oversight from a legislative standpoint. And also there's uh, not very much accountability that's being issued to the communities and places where this is being deployed. So my project not only tries to examine where is facial recognition currently being used in the U.S., but also what are things and information and knowledge that stakeholders should know. And when I refer to stakeholders, I'm speaking about the judges who may make evidentiary decisions based on this technology in criminal prosecutions. I'm referring to the litigators that are trying to uh, use this technology and its informa- and the information yielded from it in representing their clients and also just from even lawmakers who are trying to develop cohesive and comprehensive policy for their constituents so they can usher in kind of this new age of surveillance technology in a sense in a safe and ethical manner. And while I may personally feel that bans and moratoria are appropriate in certain scenarios, uh, I think it's safe to say that the genie is out of the bottle. And we've seen that there's been a lot of use of facial recognition technology. And we're seeing a very large expansion in terms of the infrastructure across the country. So this is an issue that's not really going to go away. And while I think that bans and moratoria may be appropriate, I think that it might be more helpful to look forward to the future and ask, how can this technology be deployed in a safe and ethical manner if it cannot necessarily be stopped in that regard? Thank you for that, Stephen. It's uh, it's always really interesting hearing about the actual research that you're doing. Uh, one of the things that I was hoping that you would touch on that I, I didn't hear a lot of in there uh, concerns the actual outputs of your project. So uh, we talked about this uh, a while ago, and last I remember, you were hoping to produce uh, some kind of a guiding framework uh, for people 
to use so that they could engage with AI and facial recognition responsibly and, and ethically. Is, is that still the case? Yeah. So the end goal of this project is to develop a protocol that works on four levels. And so the first is for judges, litigators, and lawmakers, giving them a framework to understand this technology, understand the limitations of it, and what questions should be asked when these systems are being essentially offered in front of them. Second, for community members, because there are certain scenarios where uh, lawmakers are using a notice and comment type proceeding to introduce this technology into the communities. And while I think that's admirable, if the average person doesn't have an understanding of technology and the context and even just like the simple lexicon to discuss it, they can't be a part of the discussion. So I think it's critical that the communities where it's being deployed in, that they have a say and they kind of need information in order to be able to make that decision. Third, looking at best practices for either engineers as well as tech companies in terms of how do they market this uh, framework in a way that not only violate does not violate FTC regulations, but also is very transparent about inf- about information about where has this system been tested and trained and what are the expected outcomes once it is deployed and information even just about simple like how should you retrain your algorithms, you know, subsequently and what type of user manuals should you provide to different jurisdictions when they're deploying the technology. And then finally, uh, simple sample policies for actual agencies that are developing this. And when I refer to policies, I'm referring to both internal and external. So how should their independent agents be using this technology? What are the evidentiary standards that they should use before they enter uh, an image into the system? Should there be minimum photo quality standards? And then from an external standpoint, how transparent should they be with their community members? And those types of issues. So I'm essentially trying to create a document that guides people through all the decisions that should be made and all the factors that should be weighed when facial recognition is being considered. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the uh, interesting and, and almost a little bit scary things that falls out of what you just said is that you're talking so much about education, uh, but this isn't an instance where there's you know maybe a, a small, discrete group of, of people that need a little bit of additional education, you're talking about a complete education from, uh, of the entire stack, right? From the general public to police officers to judges. And I, I'm sure that there's a small bubble of technologists, you know, maybe academics that really understand uh, this AI and, and what it's doing and how it's making decisions. But outside of that, you know, kind of, I'm guessing, relatively small group, who else understands this? You know, who else is really there uh, to be putting the appropriate checks on this system? I look at it almost as if everybody has a, a part of the key, but nobody has the entire key. So even if you look at the engineers developing the systems, they're obviously very educated and they have a lot of skills within their framework and their domain, but there are certain design decisions that I feel are not necessarily being looked at from a legal consequence standpoint. So when we talk about explainable AI, as we've had from previous discussions, how do you also then analyze these systems and ask, how did you come to that determination and how do you weigh different factors? So in terms of education, I think that everybody within this entire ecosystem needs some type of additional piece that they do not currently have in order to make wide-scale decisions for large groups of people, which is really what facial recognition is. It's, it's not something that operates in a vacuum or in just a single isolated environment. It's something that affects everybody within its entire purview. Even the concept that databases are now being shared by cities means that even though I may never have never been to the city of Baltimore, Baltimore PD may have my face, which is a very kind of scary proposition and kind of a new understanding of privacy. And so when we talk about 
about the reasonable expectation of privacy, the fact that your image may be in places that you've never physically occupied is very novel and new. So, so just really quickly, you mentioned explainable AI or XAI, and this is a, a relatively new movement within the AI field. So would you mind explaining what it is uh, a little more for people who might not know what it is or who might not be familiar with it yet? Yes, definitely. So XAI or explainable AI is a movement within the field of artificial intelligence that seeks to uh, develop more interpretability of these algorithms. So what's interesting is I find that tech companies often represent the outcomes in a very optimistic and uh, at times I feel overly simplified version. So for instance, they might say, a facial recognition system is 95% accurate. Uh And while you may look at that and say that that's a great number, you have to ask a set of questions of like, what is the confidence interval that was used? What are the demographics of the training data versus what is the target uh, environment and demographic that this is going to be deployed in? There are a lot of questions that go into when you produce a statistic like that that are not necessarily being analyzed. And Mm -hmm. only if you know to ask those questions can you get those answers. And so I'm trying to provide those decision makers, you know, the litigators, uh, sorry, the lawmakers rather, Mm -hmm. in their jurisdictions, the ability to evaluate these systems and be able to understand um, exactly how efficient and how accurate these systems are, not only now, but in the future as they grow and develop. Uh, I'm noticing also a trend too, where certain vendors are coming out uh, as leaders. And while, you know, that is essentially, you know, capitalism and competition at work. Mm-hmm. If you look at a city like Detroit and Chicago, other jurisdictions which currently use a vendor known as DataWorks Plus for their facial network, facial recognition systems, you have to kind of ask if other cities may follow in their footsteps simply because they've elected that uh, vendor specifically, how, how much of that is kind of just following and how much of that is asking questions and is this right for our specific jurisdiction? Yeah, so let's talk about that. that that's Because when we talk about in the public interest, we're talking about these technologies being deployed and being utilized by public agencies, by governments. But really, when you talk about notice and comment, for instance, or you talk about education, I mean, we're talking about a whole nother, it's almost like, a, it's not even another level. It's, it's, it's uh, something that we haven't, we haven't seen before, right? Can you talk a little bit more? What I'm thinking, for example, is when people are used to any kind of city process having to do with development, uh, there is a notice and comment, and there have been legitimate criticisms raised about how difficult it is for the ordinary resident to be able to participate. Uh, there's, you know, you put out a 30- or 60-day notice, people come to a meeting, there's a presentation. At that point, there's often a some sort of rendition, an architectural drawing or something like that, where at best uh, the public can look at it and have their opinions and opine and people can take it take it in or not. That is a three-dimensional representation of a building, often, uh, of which people are very familiar with both the site and the potential impacts on on their views, on you know, on the neighborhood, whatever else. We're talking about notice and comment with AI. Uh, about algorithms which are done in a black, essentially like neural networks in a black box, uh, put before the general public, and seems to me it's a whole different. Um, that process it 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 would be challenging at best to see how that works in reality. I mean, when you talk about notice and comment and this process and 
what do you think are, you know, uh, ways to address what it seems to be a um, uh, applying an old system on a new process, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, that's it. I was just really trying to figure out if there was an analogy. I, I couldn't think of any. So it's like this is this is a it's a really challenging thing. I can see a city council member trying to figure out, huh, how do I deal with this in a way that's fair and democratic and yet gets gets this uh, we can we can start moving forward with this new technology. How should they do that? That's a great question. And uh, before I get to that point, I just wanted to also give an example for people out there who may not have come in contact with a facial recognition system. I think one thing that's fascinating is it can happen at the city, state, national level, but one very uh, articulated incident happened recently in Brooklyn, New York, specifically within the area of Brownsville. There is a apartment complex known as the Atlantic Plaza Towers, and essentially there are about 400 residents within a 24-story Brooklyn apartment complex, and they recently had a communication from their property managers, known as Nelson Management, that they plan to integrate facial recognition technology into their buildings. And the stated reasons were notions of privacy and things of sorry of safety rather, and things of this nature. But the residents feared that this would kind of not only violate their privacy, but additionally it may be used to evict them. And the notion of how this would play out would be if there is facial recognition systems, it would be easier to catch things like unauthorized tenants. And also, for the example, if the building prevented, let's say, people from riding vehicles in this in the hallway, things like your children riding a scooter through the hallway could be seen as a lease violation and be used to essentially evict you from your apartment. Oh, so it's not just ring the doorbell, see who it is, and I'll let you in if I recognize your face. Correct. So it's not just the egress, you know, and like and, and restricting. Correct. Wow. Yeah, so, so like whole property surveillance, essentially, wow. and monitoring every kind of aspect of people's lives. Yes. And, and so what, what was and the then, rationale? Do you know? Like what would the, yeah, what? how could that possibly serve like the interests of, the tenants to make them better is this just in the name of what do you wh- wh- wow this is just like an amazing example of something that <laughs> we should all be extremely concerned about so from what i've read what really frustrated the tenants is that they tried to kind of get more information uh-huh. about not only what type of cameras would be installed but the data retention issues who would have access to the data is it also being live monitored by the police and all these types of questions you would want to know if this is being installed outside of your door and i think it's also key to notice that to to note rather that a lot of these apartments were public housing and it's very interesting in the sense of individuals within public housing have historically faced certain over-policing, over-surveillance methods that have a tendency to uh, marginalize a lot of the residents and kind of harm a lot of their experiences. And a lot of the tenants, from what I've read online, uh, this whole idea is pitched to them from the notion of safety, that it would kind of make Uh them more safe. But what's fascinating is that they already had key fobs that were not only just for the outside doors, but also internally. And one of the residents actually stated that she felt that she lived in a juvenile detention center, which I think kind of speaks to how even modern surveillance techniques, whether it's like using key fobs that are time-coded, which can tell exactly what time you come in and out, are already just a high level of kind of surveillance. And to increase facial, increase with facial, facial recognition technology, even if the original mission stated may be that it's only for the 
entrance and exit of the building, it can always be expanded. And so there's this notion of mission creep, which says, regardless of what the original purpose was that stated, once you have the infrastructure in place, and I'm referring to the physical infrastructure of having cameras separate from the technology that's able to do this, once you have the infrastructure in place, you can kind of expand the purposes of why you're doing this. So to give another example and a comparison, License plate readers were originally pitched as a way Mm -hmm. to catch solely stolen cars and also find abducted children, which I don't think that anybody finds to be a very controversial purpose. Mm -hmm. Amber alerts, right? Amber alerts, correct. But what's funny is license plate readers were later used in certain circumstances by ICE and other other agencies, rather, to find illegal immigrants, which is a purpose that were not originally stated. So we see in other contexts where a technology that was originally pitched for a very narrow use was later used in other means that were not originally proposed to the people that it was uh, delivered to. And one just has to think if those original... Uh, community members had known that the purpose would exceed what the original purpose was stated for, would they have agreed to it? And so I'm not necessarily saying that this is uh, purely a nefarious purpose, but we always have to be very careful about authorizing things at this scale because it can always extend further than what the original purpose was. Well, even uh, what I hear you saying, too, is actually what was the original mission. And and, uh, it goes beyond mission creep. It's even... The idea, is this for the safety of the residents and the protection and interest of the residents, or is this actually fundamentally about surveilling the residents? Because I think you have a very different, if you think about high-end luxury buildings and the kind of security that is set up for those tenants or, or condo owners who pay a lot of money and get a lot of security, um, I would be surprised uh, to find examples, maybe there are. But I would be surprised to hear examples where it's being used to for the purposes of surveilling those residents. But what you're talking about in Brooklyn sounds like a case of of doing exactly that. And, you know, having a lot of experience working with legal services, uh, knowing the history of public housing and, and, frankly, mistreatment of tenants in a lot of different cases, the idea of surveillance of tenants, even though these are legally obtained housing that folks are have a right to it. Uh, somehow the, the the core mission was not to look out for the safety, but to do the opposite. So I think that what you're what you seem to be saying too is like these from the jump, the mission has to be crystal clear. People have to understand what it is. And then the thing I think was really interesting about what you're just saying, I didn't even didn't even occur to me that the infrastructure itself, not just the AI, not just the algorithm, but how it's deployed. You know, the IoT, the the places it is. The, the use of this technology in the different, whether it's in the you know doorway sensors or whatever it is, that that structure itself has a huge impact on how how this is going to be used and you know whether it's a, advancing the mission or not. And I think those parts of the discussion, you know, kind of the architecture of how this is rolled out, seems to be a really important part of, in addition to the the code itself, the the algorithm. Like, how is this going to be, is it going to be deployed and how? I'm thinking of other examples like, you know, um, uh, uh, vest cams on police officers or wherever else. Where it is, how this thing is, how, how these algorithms are deployed seems to be like a really, really big subject that hasn't really, we haven't heard that much discussion about it. Definitely. And I think that another thing to take from the Brooklyn story, just to also round it out, is that Brooklyn Legal Services were able to step in and aid the tenants in not only crafting a media strategy where they kind of publicize Nelson Management's plan mm. to 
uh, introduce these cameras, but also guide them into the discussions with the company as to how these cameras would be implemented or this technology would be implemented. And ultimately, the management company elected not to utilize the technology. Interesting. And an interesting outcome from this is legislatively, Senator Cory Booker recently introduced a piece of legislation called the No Biometric Barriers to Housing Act, uh-huh. which is a uh, has a term provision about one year, which essentially prohibits the use of biometric information from being used within public housing. And what's fascinating is that legislation regarding this technology is happening at all levels. So mm-hmm. there are currently four cities in the United States where this is prohibited by government, police, and law enforcement agencies. And so those are San Francisco, mm-hmm. Oakland, Somerville, Massachusetts, and Berkeley, California. Mm -hmm. And those four cities are kind of unique, but they've also recently kind of implemented the bans within like the last year or two. And then what's interesting too is from a statewide level is that one of the bills that stands out to me personally in that it clearly states facial recognition and not necessarily a broad term such as biometric identifiers. And just to distinguish the two terms, biometric identifiers can be largely defined as any any piece of information that you can almost emit or detect just from the surveillance of the body. So you're also talking about things like gait recognition, which is essentially how you walk, which is also a unique feature to human beings. Um, Iris tracking is the way that you move your eyes is also very unique. So there's other surveillance techniques, but facial recognition is kind of leapt out ahead of all the others because number one is it's very hard to change your face. Um, It's what you refer to as immutable in that one of the few ways to change your face is either surgery, mass amount of hormones, or some type of accident, for instance, would Mm -hmm. all significantly alter your face. Mm -hmm. So it's a very reliable within that standpoint, but the detection of the technology is not itself reliable. It's more so that your face itself is static. It's very similar to a fingerprint in that they are largely consistent over your life, even though age and things like that tend to drastically change your face over time. For the most part, your face stays as a relatively stable and um, consistent pattern, if you so to speak. So back to the legislation, California Bill yeah. 1215 just passed, and you mentioned police body cameras. That's mm-hmm. the subject of Bill 1215, which essentially says that uh, facial recognition within police body cameras um, is prohibited. And the reason for this is that Body cameras were originally introduced to the public as a method of increasing transparency between the community as well as police as a response right. to certain incidents right. um, involving like alleged police brutality and right. un- unjustified shootings. And the issue is is that facial recognition, while you may view it as you know just another tool for law enforcement to kind of, and this is the argument used to essentially do their job better and more efficiently, there's a risk of misidentifications. And so the idea is that if during like a traffic stop or some type of incident, if the technology mislabels you as, let's say, a violent criminal or mismatches you with someone else, the officer may respond with an increased amount of violence or aggression, in, in, believing that they may be in danger, and this may lead to uh, suboptimal outcomes, if you will. So that's a goal of California Bill 1215, and it lasts for about three years. But that's the first piece of legislation that specifically mentions facial recognition on the statewide level and its integration within body cameras. So, Well, I, I just think about like the video we do see, whether it's from, from body cameras or from video and how it has that shaky cam feel. And it's often the lighting is not right. I you know, knowing enough to be dangerous about film and and that. It's like the conditions have to be just great to capture somebody well on camera, right? And we're talking about real-world conditions. So talk about a little about this this technology. How advanced is it? And what is, you know, what's the real-world, you know, uh, significance of 
of uh, when somebody says we're going to use this for even if it's the noblest goal, which, which everybody agrees with, is the technology up to it? You know, uh, and then what are the limitations within that? Because I think part of it is like people have heard enough to know there are controversies. But let's 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 take a little uh, uh, side discussion on this uh, technology itself, where where the state of it is. Yeah, so great question. Uh, facial recognition algorithms have been around since the 90s, but the reason why we're seeing a large increase is because of certain advancements, so such as 3D imaging and skin texture analyzation and what's, or, sorry, skin texture analysis rather. And the limitations of this extends to four main categories. So the first is age. The technology is has been known to not perform as well on very young people and very old people. So uh, a recent study came out that says that specifically under the age of 17 and over the age of 71, uh, there are significant drops off, drop-offs in accuracy, and that's in theory supposedly because your facial structure changes so much between those times because of bone formation and things like that. Uh, number two, within genders, we're seeing a very big difference between men and women, and there are a few hypotheses as to why that is exactly. Um, and then three, finally, within race or just even just the color of your skin tone, it performs less accurately on darker skinned individuals. And the danger with that is that over-policing tends to affect minority communities first and in many pre-documented scenarios uh, to the worst extent. And so there's a fear that over-policing already exists and that if we introduce facial recognition as yet another tool kind of like in the struggle, that it may further marginalize certain communities of uh, black and brown minorities. Well, not to mention the, the the intersection with youth and 17 and younger, and you just think about um, uh, the convergence of those, uh, and an error rate of anything is significant, uh, but you're talking about like significant error rates that have, you know, life and death significance to folks that are, that are being, um, well, that they're, that are being unlawfully uh, detained or worse, right? I mean, this is this is the real danger we're talking about in in real life. In addition to some of the some of the examples of surveillance, it is also like uh, uh, li- life and liberty of folks who are uh, wrongfully identified, right? I mean, that's like, so. Maybe we should talk about like um, if not a ban, why not? Because frankly, uh, the call has been for. Um, uh, to have these technologies which just make it even more likely to have uh, wrongful detention, wrongful arrest, uh, and everything that follows from that. How do you think that that this could potentially be uh, managed? And then if there is, the, is there something down the road that would make this technology worthwhile? Or is what we're seeing in San Francisco, Oakland, you know, Somerville and Berkeley kind of the way to go forward? Because you mentioned earlier that the genie may be out of the bottle, but um, uh, ultimately the public still has the ability to to uh, decide on what policies we think make sense. Uh, we are we are still in a democracy, and we're going to maintain you know our ability to to uh, shape those policies. So, uh, and yeah. as you were thinking about that, I, I I think that one of the things that Mike brought up that's particularly interesting. Uh, is this idea of error rate. So um, one of the things that we've seen with new and emerging technologies sort of historically is that people expect a lot more of new technologies than is maybe appropriate. 
Um, and this is particularly true with AI where people see or they, they'll look at a new AI technology or some other digital technology and they'll expect perfection or something close to perfection. You know, it's almost like they have sort of an, an acceptable error rate in their head. And uh, even if the, you know, the legacy error rate is pretty terrible, unless this new technology uh, can uh, approach that, you know, benchmark error rate that they, they have in their head, uh, they tend to dismiss it, right? So if there's something that is right 50% of the time and they want something to be right 98% of the time, something that's right 70 75% of the time is not good enough. Um, and so a lot of times they'll resist a technology uh, just because it's not perfect or doesn't meet, meet this benchmark, um, even though it's, it's a significant improvement or, or any improvement over the old technologies. So one of the things that could fall out of that uh, that premise here is that um, so you mentioned that if a live police body cam identifies somebody kind of on the fly as a criminal, as a violent criminal, um, that person, when the police officer, when the police officer is approaching them, uh, may see a more violent reaction than they otherwise would would experience. And you know, there's clearly some error right here. The facial te- facial recognition technology isn't perfect, especially isn't perfect, especially on the fly. Uh, the question is. Is there a flip side here? Uh, you know, un- unfortunately, we live in an era where uh, police officers overreact to minorities. I, I don't want to say all the time, but it- it's it's certainly not uncommon uh, for a police officer to to overreact to to a minority. And um, I-, I, but I wonder if there's a chance that this facial recognition technology is, is putting us in a situation where we, or I guess, where the police. Uh, might overreact to a couple of individuals, you know, whatever that error rate is, while mitigating the response to minorities generally. Uh, So, you know, I'm thinking, obviously, it's not perfect. But if innocent people um, are, are often getting a bad reaction from police officers, and if this reaction is based on a lack of knowledge um, about whether or not uh, an officer is approaching a, a criminal or, or just or somebody with a criminal past or, you know, just a, an innocent person. Uh, the question is, you know, is it better to accept that slightly more violent reaction to a, a few individuals uh, than accept a less violent reaction to more people? So to put that kind of in real world terms, so let's say that, you know, we are looking at these stats, there's 100 people, and we can say, facial recognition technology uh, returns over these 100 people 20 hits for being a violent criminal and two of these hits are false positives. Um, So what that means, that's a 2% error rate. Um, It means that there are 18 people who are treated like violent criminals and, you know, whether or not that's a bad thing, that's really not for me to say, you know, maybe we shouldn't be treating anybody like they're violent criminal, a violent criminal. You know, I'm not sure I'm not a police officer. Um, But either way, there are 18 people that are treated like violent criminals and that's but that's the goal of the algorithm right is to identify uh who these people are so um those 18 people are you know that algorithm performed perfectly but the problem arises when that means that there are two people or you know two percent who are treated incorrectly and see a more violent response than they otherwise uh, otherwise would have seen and uh Right, the worry is that if they're identified as a violent criminal, a police officer could is probably more on edge when approaching them. You know, more likely to interpret 
uh, sort of normal movements as maybe reaching for a weapon or something just because they, they know something about that history. Um, but what's somewhat overlooked here uh, is what about the 80 people, the 80% of people, who hopefully, because of this, receive zero violence when they otherwise would receive violence? Right? So uh, let's say that there are 80% of people would have gotten at least the potential of a, a somewhat violent reaction. So, you know, mild all the way to severe. You know, people have, have been killed over this. Uh, but they would see a, a, a violent reaction in some capacity just based on the color of their skin. And this algorithm with a 2% error rate uh, prevents this mild to severe violence against 80% of people. Um, you know, really in exchange for an increase uh, in the, the violent response to 2% of people. So I'm not sure how the trade-off shakes out. But I, I, I do think it's important to think about, right? It's, it's hard for me to say like, well, of course, you know, we can sacrifice those 2% of people and, um, and you know, in exchange for the, the greater good, the safety, you know, that's one way to think about it. I don't know what's actually right. Um, but I, I do know that it's easy to talk about the negatives of a process and, and some, sometimes, you know, overlook the positives. Uh, even though there's an argument that a, a, something that's a net positive shouldn't be tossed aside merely because it has, you know, some uh, associated negatives. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, so very good points. Uh, the first thing that I want to mention is that all algorithms are different. That We have a lot of companies coming into the forefront, such as like Microsoft and Amazon. And what's important to note is that each of these algorithms measures different factors and they have different rates of accuracy. So facial recognition algorithms largely work by finding certain landmarks on your face and translating them into uh, quantitative measurements. So for instance, the distance between your two cheekbones, the length of your jawline are all measurements that you can translate and then they compare them to a known template. And so when we're talking also about how accurate certain systems are, as I slightly mentioned before, there are ways to portray the accuracy within certain confidence thresholds and things like that, which unless you ask a series of questions, you may not exactly get the clear picture. So I think I first want to note that each algorithm operates differently, and you can also kind of interpret how they uh, function differently. How do we and find to, that out? How do we know? So Who asks who and how? Are those algorithms public? So one thing that I've also been looking into is freedom of information requests from different jurisdictions, from even just local California cities as to what is their procurement process? Mm -hmm. What kind of questions do you ask when you're evaluating between different vendors? How do you make decisions between different systems? Right. And some of that is covered by NDAs in the terms of that they cannot sure. disclose exactly what was discussed, how it was discussed, who was even present in the Trade room. Trade secrets and whatnot, basically competitive reasons. Exactly. And so this but, but these are being deployed in the public interest with, with, as I said, life and liberty implications for the public. Exactly. And so even when we discuss scope, I do feel that the private sector has a host of considerations that may not be being addressed in terms of privacy, but mm -hmm. I distinguish Apple unlocking your phone from, let's say, uh, like let's say, the San Jose Police Department, for instance, arresting someone simply because, as you mentioned, life, liberty are very critical things, and the ability of the state to imprison you is something that's very serious that I think should be analyzed and much more safeguards should kind of be put in place, which is the reason why I focus specifically on public agencies and law enforcement. Well, would you be, would you be uh, in some ways, are you, are you making the case for um, an open source approach to this when it comes to the public interest? 
or are there existing open sources approach open source approaches that just aren't heavily utilized? Uh-huh. So when we refer to open source, I would ask, do you are you referring to more of a spectrum or more of a zero sum in terms of complete transparency? What would, I do you, recognize what would that, you say? Because that's provocative, and I would love to hear your thoughts. Because we're talking, I mean, we're talking really, really critical issues. Um, you know, goes at core policing functions, but like you said, the power of the state over the individual and and the the right of the people to have a state that serves and doesn't surveil. One of the cases that I think that is a brilliant uh, case study of some of these concerns is the state of Florida versus Willie Lynch, where essentially a man was tried and convicted of selling $50 of crack cocaine and sentenced to eight years. And what's fascinating about this case is that essentially undercover officers were approached by a man who sold them um, drugs and mm -hmm. the officers use a track phone to snap a picture of the man and then they let the man walk away. Afterwards, the officers emailed a picture of that photo to an analyst who ran the photo through a facial recognition database operated by that specific department within Florida. And when the analyst received a hit, she then sent it back to the officers. They located the man who was Willie Lynch, who they believed was the crack dealer known as Midnight. And they essentially started a criminal proceeding against him. And what was funny is before the trial started, only a few more months or so, Willie Lynch found out the facial recognition had been used in his case. And when this happened, he began filing pre he began filing pretrial depositions to not only the officers and detectives involved in the case, but also the specific analyst. And in doing so, he realized that the analyst did not have a certain level of competency that I believe to be sufficient to operate and make a determination. So very specifically when I say that, the analyst stated that when she ran the search query for his photo, he was a top candidate and one star was put next to his name. But when she was further pressured as to how many stars were possible and exactly what each star meant in terms of the likelihood of certainty, she was unable to answer certain questions. And for that, I feel it's a little uh, less than optimal in terms of how she should be acquainted with the software that's being used to essentially prosecute and convict. Without a doubt, we not only need to look at the procurement. So the analysts of, did not even understand the 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 basis of the decision of the uh, of the decision of the identification based on f fundamentally on like the the proprietary code was not transparent enough to be able to let the analysts understand or what was cause, so so maybe I think you know, I mean I'll kind of rewind and give you a chance yeah. to, to modify your language. You you said that you didn't think it was optimal, which is very different from being acceptable. Uh -huh. So where. Where are you, are you trying to say that this analyst's, uh, I guess, level of, of knowledge and level of competence was? And where With does it, it need to be? Right. Great question. So even dis user, user interface decisions, such as how many stars do we use? So when I refer to stars, I'm saying within this case, uh, from what I've read, there was one star displayed next to his name and no other stars next to other candidates. But qu the question was asked in the cross-exam, how many stars are possible and what does one star mean, actually? Uh -huh. And so... If you're unable to answer those questions, there's two things that arise from that. Number one, from a user interface design, whether it's a field agent reviewing it or it's someone who's sitting behind a desk who's removed from the actual situation, how are we communicating the results of the algorithm to that specific representative of the police department? Right. How is that person trained in terms of 
how they should interpret these results and what other kind of considerations were also made in the design that may increase the transparency. So even from just a simple, the person looking at the screen and looking at the results, what are they seeing and what do they understand those results to mean? Separate from the issue of as a criminal defendant, what are your rights to kind of evaluate the algorithm? So to make a comparison, if you were pulled over for speeding with them, a radar gun, for instance, you have a right typically to challenge the calibration and understand was that machine actually calibrated. Mm-hmm. I think I would argue in my personal opinion that you should have similarly kind of an understanding of what weighting was placed within the algorithm that analyzed you. Also, what other people were produced, very similar to a lineup. You should be able to see who else was a potential suspect for the crime in a sense. So it's kind of a hard question to ask, to answer within the uh, conversational aspect of what is the correct level of interpretability of mm-hmm. these systems. But I think a higher standard um, should be applied from what we're currently seeing within the uh, criminal litigation around this issue. Well, what, what what I'm hearing you describe is kind of a the, your classic um, innovation approach to emerging technologies where, you know, uh, go fast and break things or whatever else. But you're talking about a technology, a set of technologies that have huge impact over people's personal lives uh, that are being deployed by public bodies and, you know, let's name it, law enforcement and and military in a way that could can affect them, you know, it can it, it's dramatic the impact. And so like in some ways the context of where and how they're approaching this innovation seems to be really important for, you know, for decision makers. And so in some ways it you know it kind of harkens to me like back to uh, the Manhattan Project and the development of nuclear technology. And without getting into a discussion about that, clearly there was a realization, now obviously it was deployed, but a realization of the dramatic effect over human life that this new technology could have and that it wasn't something just to kind of go out there and try in a sandbox, that the effect over human life was such that it needed to be controlled, in this case, by the government. And like I said, we won't get into the history of that. That's for another discussion. But it seems like this, in the public interest used by public agencies, this technology has tremendous um, impact, uh, potential and impact. But but to take the approach of uh, like uh, innovating like it's an app, like it's some, uh, a new a new uh, thing that a, a company is going to try out and iterate on and get the bugs out in this context doesn't seem appropriate at all. I mean, what is that kind of where, where, where we need to go in terms of a society and how we make decisions about this? Because to me, it's like it, it feels like a potentially dramatically, you know, it's it, the, the impact of this technology is potentially huge. We're already starting to see it. Um, and when I'm thinking about AI, facial recognition is one component of it, but how it's how we deal with it in terms of being used by governments. Yeah, and to kind of reach back to your earlier question that I didn't get a chance to answer as to why not just an absolute ban of moratorium. Mm-hmm. When I view facial recognition, I view it as a spectrum of harms. And so the first step to me is 
misidentifications. And we've seen this in certain areas, such as the case of Amara K. Majid, who was a Brown senior, a senior, sorry, a senior from Brown University who was misidentified as a suspect of the Sri Lankan bombings. Mm. Um, and on social media, the Sri Lankan police had identified her and her family received numerous death threats. And you can kind of imagine the amount of crisis that puts mm -hmm, you in as well mm -hmm, as your family. Mm -hmm. So I think of misidentification as the first issue. Two, even if we could get the technology, quote, perfect, or at least within like a very, very small error rate, I see the issues of due process, which we previously discussed, in terms of what are your rights as a criminal defendant if this was used in your investigation or your prosecution to be an issue? And then three, the increase of the surveillance state is something that I think deeply about mm -hmm. and the corresponding effects on the First Amendment. So if you look at uh, an example such as the effect of over-surveillance on Muslim communities in New York City following 9-11, mm -hmm. they practiced their faith in public significantly less and participated in other activities less simply because they knew that they were being monitored. And so my fear is that in the future, whether because of you know outside actor access, uh, the the network of cameras may be used against you in ways that even if they're not necessarily for criminal prosecutions, uh, information can be collected at you. So let's say a person's a member of the LGBTQ community mm -hmm. and cameras, let's say, detect you going into a center in and out regularly. And that's mm -hmm. something that no normally no one would ever know because of facial recognition and a camera placed on the street. People know that about you in a sense. Right. That's what I'm worried about. And you'll be less likely to participate in certain behaviors if you know that you're being watched and monitored constantly. So within that regard, the original question of the bans of moratoria is that within every ban, there's always carve-outs because of two words, national security. So if you look at San Francisco, mm -hmm. that whole city may ban it. But San Francisco Airport, that's a major carve-out simply because it's um, under the regulation of the right. FAA. And there's overwhelming concerns that kind of tip the balance. And right. even within that aspect of airports, uh, recently... Uh, certain airports that have used facial recognition, of course, the main priority is finding people that are on no-fly lists and considered potential terrorists. That's, right. I don't think anyone can debate that that's not a legitimate concern to kind right. of look out for. Right. But they're also starting to catch people who are subject to visa overseas from other countries. And there's right. a question of what do you do? Because that was not within the original kind of um, the net that, of people that we were trying to capture. But because of facial recognition, we're collecting more information and we need to make decisions about what to do with that information now that we know about it. So I think that Regardless of whatever bans we put in, the overwhelming kind of desire for national security may always overstep that. So anything short of a congressional bill, which I'm not necessarily, which I'm not necessarily optimistic will be passed anytime soon, due to uh, our current nation facing a slew of other issues that I find that people may be, uh -huh. you know, rightly or wrongly kind of overprioritizing. I don't see it as something that Congress will necessarily take up and address wide scale. So it's interesting when you think about though the the increasing concern, and I think sometimes. Uh, disbelief in government and in large institutions uh in some ways this issue highlights um some legitimate reasons for concern and i think if you think about policy making as an expression of the public's will at its best uh that an understanding of like the basis for why these technologies are being deployed and even where and how they're being deployed you don't have to give away um you know whether it's trade secrets or or uh, tactics uh, in terms of crime fighting or national security, um, you know, spycraft. You don't have to make those things public to let people understand what's going on around them, right? And I think that part of kind of an understanding of like uh, uh, the public understanding how they're being surveilled and why seems to me something that could be advocated for and, and could have a broad appeal amongst uh, even in this current context, potentially. 
Definitely. Maybe I'm being a little over, uh, you know, optimistic, but seems to me that the, there is a, a widespread concern, leading obviously to all sorts of reactions. Um, yes, and definitely, I think that that's why I kind of question how are we defining open source because yep. within the software perspective, typically that means you know showing all of your code. But I don't right. think we need to show everything to kind of increase public trust and transparency. I think we need to show enough to not only make people have informed decisions before yeah. it's being used against them in that yeah. manner. And another thing that I've noticed is within uh, Detroit, there's something known as Project Greenlight, which mm. is a widespread program where essentially if private property owners agree to let the uh, city of Detroit place cameras which in certain cases are enabled to facial recognition on their property, they get certain benefits which incentivize them to allow that on their property. So for instance, they have higher priority when responding to crimes and they make calls, they have personal visits from from actual sheriff departments within like once a week or so. So we're also seeing almost wow. the incentivization of private property owners to uh, permit and also uh, contribute to the expanding network of these cameras. And even if you just wanted to kind of evaluate it from another angle too, ring doorbells, which have been exploding in popularity across right. the country. And for those of you unfamiliar, essentially a ring doorbell is a video doorbell that is motion center activated. And the idea is that it was created to prevent things like package thieves, for instance. And when you walk past it, it activates and then it beams the video directly to your phone so you can see who's at your door and who's coming in um, and so while it's kind of advertised for that specific purpose there's an increasing worry that not only could those be accessed by internal members of ring and we see this because there are five senators who recently sent out a letter on november 20th to amazon requesting more information about this uh, system uh, on the horizon there's also fear that um, it will be expanded to kind of have uh, heightened crime fighting uh, utility. And when I say that, Ring has entered into agreements with different police departments across the country, and there's not much transparency as to what that agreement entails right. and what the responsibilities or obligations are on either side. Right. So there's a fear of integration of facial recognition also within Ring doorbells to kind of increase the surveillance network. So right. now anybody with a Ring doorbell could be part of it. And of course, there's the always the argument of you're reducing crime in your area, but it could be used to profile. And there's right. the notion that just by walking past your house, I'm now part of a database which is a very scary thought yeah and i i just think like it gets back to this thing we were talking about earlier about notice and comment and process it is uh, the infrastructure is is kind of how it's set up but the process is how we as uh residents and citizens uh interact with these technologies and those who are in control of them and i think we may not um we should have the ability to know what's going on around us, right? And and I think that piece of it, the process, seems to me uh, what I guess uh, in terms of the some of the bans and some of the efforts to like put a pause or stop is calling for transparency in the process and calling for an understanding of the implications of these different processes. I mean, the thing you talked about sounded like essentially uh, getting rid of the idea of access to justice in the context of safety when you have the, in the Detroit context where essentially if you pay more, you get more, in this case, safety. I mean, it sounds unfortunately a bit like what we're seeing in California with wildfires and how now you're starting to have private property owners being and contracting out for private fire uh, protection. Uh, that is exactly the opposite direction 
um, that we need to go in in terms of ensuring government serves the people, all the people, regardless of their means. So I think that that this process thing that you've identified and kind of being able to then also educate the stakeholders, public, people directly impacted, but also policymakers, folks who are engaging and ultimately technologists who are building these things, um, uh, that seems to be a critical now need that, you know, I, I really look forward to seeing what's going to ha- come out of your project and then what you identify. I think it's the kind of thing that we, we need to circle back and, and hear more about uh, as you get going on this thing. I, it's, it's super exciting. It's also really, really important. And I think, uh, you know, I think we're better for your work. And like I said, it's great to have you on and, and at least start to get into this because this is, this is just the beginning of the conversation. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the education angle is really important. I mean, to, to some extent, you can say that um, mandating something like open source doesn't really do anything mm-hmm. to protect anybody, right? It has to come with um, it has to come with thoughts about how do we release this information, the source code, in a way that makes the, the actual data that's contained in it accessible to everybody. Mm, exactly. Um, and uh, so I'll just ask one last question uh, to, to wrap this up. This has been a, a, a great conversation. Um, but in closing, why do you think that facial recognition technology in particular is viewed uh, as so it's viewed in a very binary way where it's either helpful or it's not helpful? So I'm thinking about uh, some of the misidentification issues that you brought up. And for me, it seems hard to believe that misidentifications in the AI age in you know, using facial recognition, that they could be more common than they are in the analog world. Right, because we don't lose the analog checks that we had. So it's, it, to some extent, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, it sounds like what's happening is that um, people are using AI to, you know, you know, quote, identify people. They're misidentifying those people, and then they're not doing the analog checks. And there must be something about AI. I mean, this, this happens with every technology, but there's something about AI that makes people view it as very binary. So wh- why do you think that is? So I think just to go back to the iPhone example, I think it's something that we are experiencing on a daily basis and often it feels like a choice. But Mm -hmm. I think that when it starts to be used by public and law enforcement agencies, it becomes less of a choice and more Mm -hmm. of a requirement. Mm -hmm. So those of us within the field of law know the concept of reasonable expectation of privacy. And I think that that one phrase has changed so much in the (laughs) last few years of what that means. it used to be kind of a notice, uh, kind of a concept of like, oh well, if you don't want to you know avail yourself, just don't you know exist in that area. But now, right. it's by stepping outside of my house, yeah, it's, right? It's a lack of an option. That's yeah. really what I focus. Yeah, on. Yeah, it was the trunk of a car, and that was the limits. And yeah, we're talking about anywhere and everywhere, basically, when you step outside, and and even frankly, with Ring and some of these other things, yeah. being talk, inside talk with Alexa. Creep. Uh, not to get into the <laughs> the voice recognition, but yes. <laughs> and two other points too, just a comment also. Uh, within the police investigations that I have reviewed, the use of facial recognition is also is often defined as an investigative lead rather than a positive identification. Interesting. And one of the reasons for that is because positive identifications kind of come with a slew of other. 
procedural safeguards that allow you as a criminal defendant to kind of question. So for instance, if there's a witness that says that you robbed a store, typically the confrontation clause says that you have a right to cross-examine that person in a court of law to ensure that what they said was not subject to you know, bias, misremembering, uh, and things of that nature. But if you use it as an investigative lead, there's a lower standard and you can kind of bury it underneath, like you were saying, all the analog measures. So it's less of an issue when it's kind of corroborated with other evidence, but the issue is, is like, what if that is the sole piece of information that implicates you, which is what is kind of the focus of the State v. Willie Lynch case, which I mm-hmm. suggest anyone mm-hmm. who's kind of further interested in this issue to look up, and where it becomes it's one of the sole or the evidence-in-chief of any type of wrongdoing that I think we really need to focus on. Interesting. So it's the corner cases where there there is no kind of analog uh, analog data, and you have to look at it and, and make an independent assessment about the accuracy of this, this digital facial recognition AI-generated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just the second point that I'd like to add to that, too, is... In all of this, I'm not saying that facial recognition does not ever produce a just outcome. Right. There have been certain circumstances where, for instance, under the Real ID Act, which essentially tries to uh, decrease, number one, the amount of like identity theft, but also just people that are operating under multiple IDs for, quote, nefarious purposes, where facial recognition has caught people such as wanted fugitives who happen to be living in Nepal and have uh, a, fel- a fake passport and have been brought to justice for child abuse. I think situations uh-huh. like that right. are not controversial to the average person, right. and we can agree that that was a just outcome. Right. Uh, the key thing to identify there, though, is that with the Real ID Act, you find higher rates of success within facial recognition simply because the photos are in a control than Environment. So when right. I say controlled, I mean a well-lit environment against a white backdrop where right. you're not having any emotion on your face. It's clear. It's very straight on, high-resolution camera. But those systems and those circumstances are much more accurate than, let's say, a cell phone video that happens to be captured by a passerby. So when you talk about error rates, that's kind of another notion that we need to come into in a sense. Like, what are circumstances where we know historically they might be more accurate than others? And then right. how should we treat those differently in terms of weighting evidence? Well, it's it's really – now, I was – I've been trying to figure out an analogy that that makes sense, but it's really like the difference if we're traveling and we're not walking, and we're we, we're getting some from A to B. Uh, there is a reason why there's a lot more requirements, process, and otherwise before you become a pilot of a commercial airline than before you ride a bike. They're both methods of transportation. They're both vehicles that we're using, but the potential implication for like you know uh, uh, for the public are dramatically different. And so I think that's, I think that um, when we're thinking about this, it seems to me that what you're talking about is we need to treat this like we would treat somebody who wanted to fly a commercial airline. There are a tremendous amount of, of, of checks. There's rules, regulations. There's all sorts of oversight on that because there's obviously great benefit to the public that, that has, you know, people agree around the world, but, but there's great danger if it's not done right. And even if 99% of people could hop behind the wheel stick of a, of a commercial uh, right. airliner and fly it well, it's that 1% that, that right. has such huge implications. That's right. You know, That's right. We, need to, we need to really think about what that 1% means. Yeah. Wow, thanks. Stephen, it's fantastic. Really interesting. Uh, really great uh, research you're, you're getting into and obviously with profound uh, implications for the public. So looking forward to continuing to hear about your work, uh, getting you back on, and uh, more to come. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, You can find my email in the description. I'm still very early on in this process, so I welcome all comments, critiques, and thoughts. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Ruben. All right. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you, get your thoughts and feedback about the issues raised in the podcast, 
and your ideas on where we should go next. Our Data is a podcast brought to you by the Blockchain Group and the Tech for Good project of Stanford's Codex Center for Legal Informatics. Thanks to the co-chairs of the Codex Blockchain Group, Tony Lai and Kushagra Srivastava, and Codex Executive Director, Roland Vogel. And special thanks to our producer, co-host, and jack of every trade, Ruben Youngbaum. I'm Michael Schmitz.